listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields, from leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon and welcome to another Walker webcast. Uh, It's a super, super big pleasure for me to have Chris Fowler um, joining me today. Uh, Chris, I think back to a recent podcast that you did with Brendan Hunt, who is the uh, assistant coach in Ted Lasso. And in that interview with him, he talked about a chance meeting you in uh, a Chicago bar many, many months ago before Brendan Hunt became what Brendan Hunt is today. Um, and nice, and you treated him really nicely. And I would say you and I had a chance meeting for one of our first, our mutual friend, Jim Courier, actually introduced us. But then um, a year or two after you and I had met, we had a chance meeting on an airplane flying from Melbourne to Sydney um, after the uh, Australian Open and had a really fun time uh, getting to know one another much better. And so I was listening to that about Brendan and said, I had my chance meeting with Chris Fowler one day. Brendan's message was tip well. Yeah, very exactly. Your waiter might become a famous actor. You might need a favor for him to come on your podcast. I said, I wasn't a memorably bad tipper. He was not memorably bad. He didn't say I gave him the greatest tip ever. But yeah, he, he said I was in there by myself in this Irish bar. Where he was a waiter back in the 90s. It's, it, you know, it's a pretty cool story. I love that. So I want to start, Chris, with uh, 10 questions that give background to you and what you do. And in the process, your answers will also inform our listeners a little bit about um, Chris Fowler, what you do, and, and all the varying components of your life. So let me start here. If I met you at the University of Colorado in 1983 or 1984 and asked you what you wanted to do professionally in your life, would it have been broadcasting or would you have potentially said that you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps, the academia or something in the theatrical world, which your father had obviously turned you on to? Definitely not the latter two, because I had no interest in academia. It was a trade school for me, journalism school, to acquire the skills I needed. I didn't have the guts to be an actor. My, my dad was around the theater. He was a professional theater director as well as a professor. So I had opportunities to, to be like the little kid in the Shakespearean play that runs on stage. And my Lord, my Lord. But I, didn't, I saw so much anxiety and tension around his theater productions because it, it inevitably came home with him and he was pretty highly wound. And I thought, my God, I, just, I want nothing to do with this. This is so much anxiety. I, I don't have the nerve to be an actor, be out there on stage. I took a long time to get over sort of anxiety about public speaking, in fact. So I did because there was too much money to be made and saying, you can't say no to these opportunities, right? So you better get over it. I knew what I wanted to do when I was 10 years old. Like I, I you know, this, everything I did in college, I was busy. I was doing all kinds of jobs, making all kinds of connections and doing everything I could in media to get the skills necessary and, and make some contacts and, and have fun because I, I loved the variety of jobs I was able to do. So that was more important to me than being in a classroom, actually. And I, I knew from a very early age, from age 10, my grandmother turned me on to sports, what I wanted to do 
for a living from listening to Chicago area broadcasts of Cubs games, Blackhawks games, Bulls games. So yeah, I'm living the dream of that since I'm 10 years old. So you've covered lots of sports. What's your favorite sport? It's a, it's a tie and people don't believe me. The football people cannot believe that I love tennis as much as college football, but I do. Uh, I was a kind of a hack tennis player as a kid. Um, never very good at it. Thankfully, my tennis skills did not factor into the ability to get the job I have. But the sports are so different. Um, I, I love the distinction between them, the ultimate team sport, the ultimate individual sport. Um, 22 guys with control of chaos on a field, just two people on a court. Uh, I, I think that yeah, I, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to have the the chance to call it championship events in my two favorite sports. And it is a, a flat foot tie. I love soccer. I love hockey. I love a lot of other sports, but um, th- those two are my favorites. How many of Colorado's 14,000 foot peaks have you climbed? Somebody asked me that, you know, I climbed a, a bunch of them when I was a little kid because we came to Colorado for summers for the first time at like 10 or 11. And I remember my brother and I would look out the window at these mountains as we drove into Colorado's high country for the first time and go, oh, my. we thought they were the Himalayas. But oh, someday, someday, maybe we could climb those. Like a month later, we're climbing them because that's what you do out there. And and, and I, I got a taste early, piled them up early. I think I'm sitting at 35 because I made very slow progress um, uh, in recent years, climbing different ones. Now you got to drive all the way to the southwest part of the state. Even though we spend our summers in Breckenridge, um, I haven't been able to to get enough time to go do that. So I don't. The dream of hitting all fifty four, you'll get there. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I, I'm not caught up in the numbers. I, I enjoy every climb, even if I climb about ten times. I, I reclimbed a couple this summer that I'd been up. One I'd been up many, many times. That's Andrew. And uh, it was a uh, quandary, quandary, quandary peak. Yeah. And I climbed Mount Massive, which is second highest in the state, which I hadn't climbed since I'm 15. So from 15 to 60 is a hell of a gap. And uh, I, I, that's a huge part of my happiness out there is climbing mountains. But I don't get caught up so much in the scorecard as I used to when I was a kid. What's the largest audience to watch an event you commentate? Uh, it's easily the college football playoff. Might have been the first one. In the playoff era, uh, Ohio State beating Oregon. I mean, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's like you know, 24, 25 million, which is a, a huge number. Um, but you also had the World Cup. You also did World Cup. Is yeah. Okay. You're getting global audience. Yeah. I, yeah. I hosted ESPN's coverage of the World Cup. Now, a billion people watch the World Cup. They weren't watching yeah. ESPN's coverage. But yes. Yeah. No, I mean, that was, you're asking, that's one of the big thrills I've had because I, I, I am a soccer fan. I love global sports. I have a very strong feeling for South Africa. I've been there many times. So to be able to host the World Cup in that country was really powerful for me. But um, I didn't call the game too. So there's a little bit of a distinction. When you host it, you're setting the table. And I, I love doing that on game day and other things I've done. But the ultimate thing for me is to be able to document it and by calling it. And I think that's that the championship games in football, I, I put them on a par with Wimbledon finals, U.S. Open finals, but they're watched by a lot more people than the tennis matches. So I'd have to say the playoff games, which are pretty big audiences. So you've been married to Jennifer for 23 years. You've worked for basically the same employer for 37 years. 
you have two SUVs, one that's 11 years old and one that's 15 years old. Where's, where's, the, uh, where's the deep sense of loyalty come from, Chris? I don't know if it's loyalty or just stubbornness or laziness. I mean, I, not, not, not when it comes to the marriage. I'm not going to say, no, I, I think if you find a good thing, you stick with it. Um, the SUVs, I, I now I'm gotten rid of. I had a, a 97 Explorer really for until 2012. So I had it for 15 years um, as my only vehicle. They were like, ah, oh, yeah, no, it was my only vehicle. Then we got an Audi SUV. I kept it for 11 years. And finally down in Miami, I had thought, you know, I, I don't need a car to drive in the snow anymore, right? Forget the four-wheel drive. I want a car car. I want a Miami-type car that I can drive. So I, I got a BMW M5, which is a, like a rocket and a beautifully made car. So I'm not really, I've never been a car person. Um, I had sports cars when I was a kid. Then I had sensible vehicles, like you said, for 27-some years. And now I have a very, if I've come in full circle back to my teenage self, I have a very fast car. Um, that thankfully I haven't gotten a speeding ticket in yet, but I don't know. I mean, I, I'll probably keep it for a long time too. That, that I tend to do that, but uh, I didn't, you don't set out to work for one company for 37 years. That's for sure. In this business, that's, that's a, that's a pipe dream, you know, but because I get into a lot of different things in one company, um, it's been easy to stay there. It's always been the right choice to stay versus leave when given opportunities. Um, I'm glad I, made the right choice and didn't leave because something at the time pissed me off and I, and I wanted a bolt. I made a mature or strained prudent decision and stayed with the company. And that that's been a great choice. And now that Bob, Bob Iger is back running Disney, you and Bob have both been at ABC Cap Cities and the ESPN into Disney for about the same amount. I don't know that our careers are quite intertwined. I, I'm not going to go. <laughs> hey, listen, I mean, it, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been, Interesting to be in a Disney employee. It's never a dull place, and it's been gratifying in a lot of ways. Uh, John Madden, Howard Cosell, Brent Musburger, Pat Summerall, Jim Nance, other than yourself, best sports broadcaster of all time. Oh, wow. Um, well, I'm not, not going to put myself number one. I, I, did. I, I think that I did. Well, no, come on. That's, that's very nice, but let's be real. I mean, I, I, I don't get competitive in the business. I don't rate myself versus my peers, current people. I, I really don't look at it that way. I, I really view it as meeting my own standard um, and, and not trying to get competitive because it, it's such a subjective business. I mean, you like different bands than your friends, maybe. We all like different movies, different TV shows. We like different announcers, just, just stylistically. Um, but there's certainly been you know, plenty of people who have who've helped me and influenced me. Al Michaels has been a tremendous mentor to me. He does exactly what I do, uh, which is play-by-play play lately. So Jim McKay was one who, when he hosted the Olympics, was a, a big influence on me as a very young kid because I saw the humanity that he brought to the job and how it wasn't about stats and and the scoreboard necessarily. is about people and stories, and he never forgot that. And, and in, in watching those early Olympic games, I think I developed a passion for the Olympics or for global sports because of the lens that he let us all watch through. And, and so those, those, those are two names that, that, that come to mind, but there, there, there's so many. Do you think Alan Michaels has ever had an event that he's covered that has replicated the miracle on ice in 1980? 
Not in terms of the connection with the public. I mean, when you're in your early 30s and you come up with, uh, do you believe in miracles? Yes. I mean, and it still gives people chills. Oh, yeah. Right. Three, now. Just three years later. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, but look, I mean, he's done incredibly high level work for a long, long time. So maybe the catchphrase is hard to match, but the body of work, the excellence across a wide uh, range of sports. I mean, Al is, um, you know, I think has been the standard in football. Uh, game calling for a long time and he's still going. Works with my buddy Kirk and Amazon now. So. Uh, as somebody who both knows college football as well as anyone and also is a graduate of the great University of Colorado, does primetime actually arrive in Boulder? Man, um, primetime hype arrives. I think you have to match it. Now I realize and you understand the nuance of my question. Does it actually yeah, no, time? Yeah, I mean, Prime time, yes, because they were dead on the slab. The program was dead. Okay, defibrillators were needed to shy. I went to their one win last year. I went to watch them beat Cal last year. Yeah, one but win of the season. One win, but zero buzz. I mean, zero energy, zero relevance, um, and all those things really matter. And in modern football, you have to have energy. You have to have juice. You have to have um, a buy-in from the public, from the media, from your players. They had none of that. So Dion comes in and provides all those things as only he can. I mean, only he can. Yeah. And and sort of rewrites the book and how to construct a roster. Now, a lot of us are curious, a little anxious, and I have quite as much faith as he does that they're going to win big now. Neither does Vegas. If you look at the over-under for their wins for this season, it's three and a half. It's a pretty modest total. I think most Buffs fans would consider it a real failure to win four games, five games, right? They're thinking about bigger goals than that. But um, realistically, it's never been done this way. You know, so we, you have to, I, I think I think the season comes down to a couple of games at home, uh, Nebraska and Colorado State, two rivals. And that will define how things are going early on because I don't think the Elmer is going to be very easy to win against TCU. It's fun though, man. I'm telling. I was there for the spring game. It was crazy. All the alums were back. It's it snowed. snowed. You know, they thought no one was going to show up. I said, no, 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 no. This is Colorado. I promise. It, they want to be here. They're excited for this spring game. They're going to show up, and they filled the stadium in a blizzard, basically. Yeah. And 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 the game went off, and it was a great showcase, and it was it was an awesome two three days for me really, to be back in Boulder and see those ex-players hang around and, you know, you know, get some love for Dion and you get a chance to talk to the players. And then that little that I know, most of the guys we're going to talk about in that spring ain't going to be out the door. <laughs> we kind of had a sense, but I mean, the extent of the roster turnover is mind boggling. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see, but uh, I, it's fun. It's fun. And for now um, you got to ride the wave and, and, and players are buying in and that's the most important thing. You uh, you start the season covering the Utah versus Florida game. How many hours, Chris, will you spend on research on the two teams, rosters, player profiles, what have you, and getting prepared for a nationally broadcast game between Utah and Florida? Well, it's really tricky. I, here, I'll show you a visual aid. This is it so and so? This is my chart. This is the Utah Florida chart, and I got it a couple of days ago. And I'm, I'm looking at it, highlighting it, filling in the stats. These are the analytics reports. These are the stats. 
I headed down to Gainesville to see the Gators um, this coming week. I'll also go to Tallahassee to see Florida State because we have Florida State LSU three days after that Utah-Florida game. So I, this preparation is unlike anything else. I have three games that fall within the U.S. Open, which is really daunting, uh, unprecedented for me. So I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I have a lot of years of experience and time management and figuring out how not to waste my time and what I really need to spend it on. So I mean, it's a, I can't spend the usual, I don't know, 40 or 50 hours a week, which I would typically do for a primetime game alone, just on that game, because it's divided up. And when tennis and U.S. Open it starts on Monday, collides with football, I mean, it's nuts. Dude, I, I will go in there and 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 call a match at Arthur Ashe Stadium in the afternoon, run back to the bus, get that chart out, make a phone call, look at some tape, get ready for a night match back in Arthur Ashe Stadium, and and then go home and maybe sneak some football prep before I go to bed. And that happens pretty much every day I'm at the tennis because you cannot just ignore football. I have to combine the two. And to do three games <laughs> within the open, they, they just kept asking. I just kept saying, yes, I don't know. I mean, they're all really fun, good games, but it's like two days of tennis, two days of football, one day of tennis, two days of football, five days of tennis, one day of football, one day of tennis. That's that's at warp speed, but that is the 14 days of the U.S. Open for me. So you'll do the um, men's semis. Travel. You'll do the men's semis on Friday, then fly off to do Saturday night. Uh, football and then come back. Yeah, that's Texas, Alabama, which is a monster game, which is why they asked me and why I said yes. So, um, yeah, so I didn't want to miss that. I do not want to miss the men's semis or the men's final because each one of these matches, um, you've got guys like Djokovic and Alcaraz battling, feels like it's a piece of tennis history. So it'll be a a blast to to be. I'm a blast, man. I I get to do all that stuff within two weeks. I'm not complaining. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, It's a challenge. And and I'll do my best to meet my standard, but it's it's also really really fun. And when you say you're going down to Florida this week, Chris, what are you, if you will, what are you looking for? In other words, are you spending time with coaches? Are you spending time with players? Are you trying to kind of put the face to the data that you've studied up on some yeah. new recruit? What what are you actually looking for when you're doing that? Yeah, you're all over. It's all those things. I mean, I, you you do meet with coaches and players. I mean, that's that's essential. If I'm going to go down there, it's not just to watch a practice. We do watch a practice so you can get a sense of, yeah, here's what this guy looks like. It's not just a, um, a, a little guy you see running on tape or uh, on on the page because we don't really cover. I don't cover Florida much. They're, they're an SEC team. We didn't do it them. So I, to get eyes on them is important. Um, Florida State. We'll have a few times this year as part of the ACC package. So uh, I'll get something out of being with that team for a full day other than just get ready for their opener. So, yeah, you, you do all that stuff and and you you sort of you talk to the equipment manager, you talk to the strength coach, you, you talk to the sports information people. You 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 you're trying to get a sense of what this team is about. Chemistry wise, Florida had some serious chemistry. They were disaster. They cratered at the end of last year. Right. So you, I need to sort of get a sense of whether or not Billy Napier or their coach has been able to build that right away in year two. And B, there's no substitute for being there in person. You mentioned Florida State. 
Your old partner, Lee Corso, is a Florida State graduate. And interestingly, as I was doing some research on you, Chris, and I knew, you already know where this is going. I, I don't know, but I have a feeling I did. I did not know that Burt Reynolds was his roommate <laughs> at Florida State. And I was listening to you replaying the day that Burt Reynolds, for, to, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll condense this down so you don't tell the whole story over again. But Burt Reynolds thought you said something about him at some time that you still to this day can't figure out what it was. But he came up and he said, you want to feel like you want to go. And you're like, excuse me, what are you talking about? How, I mean, like, what's up with Burt Reynolds walking up to you and being like, let's go. Around? Oh, man, like the late great. I was a huge fan. Man. Who doesn't love Smokey and the Bandit? I mean, who doesn't have the longest yard for me? Some of my favorite movies, you know? And uh, and all the yard, I mean, just such a wreck. So, I mean, yeah, he punches me in the arm backstage at the ESPY Awards in Radio City. Out of the darkness, I feel this punch in the arm. I look over, hey, Bert. And he's, and I have none of these. He's blood in his eyes, really pissed off at me. But he won't tell me why. I can't figure out exactly what he thought. I said something about Lonnie Anderson when they were going through marital troubles. I mean, why would I do that on game day? What in what world am I talking about a celebrity divorce? Like I and and, and you know I, I asked Mr. Corso, would you please ask him? Just let's try to get to the bottom of this because it's a mistaken identity. It's not me. He's saying by somebody else. There's a lot of dudes on TV, you know, generic looking white guy with dark hair. He, it's not me. Okay, so yeah, the second time I see him, he wants to. He wants to. He gets up in my face and you don't want to fight a seventy year old man. And uh, he was right about that. I mean, are you kidding me? I, as I've said, like, lose, lose, right? Like, if you punch Burr Reynolds, if you defend yourself and it comes to that and you hit him, you've hit a 70-year-old legend on a field where he played where he's, hey, you're going to get, like, wrestled to the ground by Leon County Sheriff and, and, you know, spend game day night in jail, okay? If you lose, now you've been beat up by a 70-year-old man. In front of 75,000. So it's, it was no way to win that one. So we kind of, I, I never did though, ever figure out what, what it was he had against me. And, and I never will now. So a mystery. Uh, on your podcast, Who You Got, which is to anyone who's listening to this, I would strongly recommend Chris's podcast because it's fantastic. And he has these amazing guests on. But you venture much broader than just sports. I mean, you've got plenty of great people on and Chrissy Everett, your interview yeah. with her was great. I want to talk in a moment about your interview with Lance because I wrote Lance over the weekend and just said that I thought the conversation he had with you was one of them. I've listened to a lot that Lance has done and that conversation you had with Lance went to a space that I have not seen him go to. It speaks volumes about your relationship with him and why he went kind of so deep so quickly, um, particularly the comment when he said that he had thought when he was getting remarried that he would change his name, um, which just just shocked me. Um, but um, they're also, you know, I, I saw David Yarrow last week, Chris, and, 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 and I told Yarrow that I had you on and Yarrow just, just his face opened up and he said, oh my God, Chris Fowler, he's just the best. And here's Yarrow, who's one of the most incredible photographers of our time doing yeah. wonderful things with the lens. You have mountaineers on 
What's the what's the guiding, if you will, principle as it relates to you and the guests that you have on who you got in the sense of what are you looking for? Are you looking for leadership lessons? Are you looking for things that just interest you? Are you looking for um, areas of the world outside of sport that you like to venture into? Yeah, sometimes I want to learn about a topic. And the research, as you know, doing a podcast can be really fascinating the, the topic interests you. So in getting ready for guests, I'll, I'll get a background on, on on all kinds of things. I love tequila. I learned a lot about tequila. When I had the CEO of a tequila company out, it was a, a woman, very prominent in, in, in the business, did a show on bourbon and had Paddy Van Winkle's grandson on. Just, I like bourbon. So that's that's those are kind of outlier episodes, but Normally, it's just really interesting people that that either I already know and would enjoy hanging out with, or let's have a structured conversation because it's fun to talk to Charles Barkley or Dick Vitale or or Jay Billis or Mike Tirico or uh, on and on. I've had a lot of, of colleagues from the business that I have known. Some I didn't know very well, but I wanted to have the experience. Stephen A. Smith, I didn't know well. Andres Cantor, the great Spanish language announcers. Gold, the famous... Well, guys like that from my business that I don't really interact with regularly are, are a blast. And then we've had an incredible range of people from from Matthew McConaughey to Cheryl Crow, our mutual friend Mike Mills of RM, and because I love music too. So, uh, and, and David Yarrow is just a, is so brilliant at something I appreciate, which is photography, and 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 I love wildlife too. So swapping stories with guys like that, and then my wife Jennifer co produces it. So. We do all of this together. We, we think about guests together, research it, do the edit points. We don't have a, some um, you know, huge apparatus to help us put this out. It's, it's not intended as a, as a for-profit thing. It's just a labor of love and a creative outlet for me, which is why I didn't want to do a sports pod. I don't want to do stuff that's just like the content I do on ESPN. It, it, this is very different, as you point out. And one of the ones that really interested me and something that you obviously love very much, um, being in the outdoors, uh, mountain climbing, um, Wasfia Nazarene, the Bangladeshi woman who summited K2 is, I th- what was it? She's the 16th woman to summit K2 or something. It was like, I was shocked in the conversation, Chris, about how few people have actually summited K2. And I think one of the stats that you put out there was more people have gone to the moon that have summited K2. Whereas we all think that Everest is, you know, over yeah. 5,000 people have actually summited um, Everest. How did you, how did you track her down? Because her story is so incredible. Yeah, that that's a, there's a great example. I mean, you, you do this, it, you, you, you become aware of somebody that you never expect to meet. You read about, in this case, her achievements, and and you you're just in awe, and you find a way to get connected. You make the approach. You you let her know the mountains are important to you, and some of the things that she uh, has made important in her life. Her association with the Dalai Lama, who's the one who told her that she should make the mountains her calling. She actually studied under him. She she's a friend of his as well as a mentee. So she's got all these different facets. I thought just to meet her would be incredibly interesting, and so. We finally made it happen and and struck up sort of a long distance friendship and stayed in touch. And she put me in touch with the legendary Sherpa in Nepal that she knew very well, um, who guided me and my brother and a buddy around Nepal this spring. And I never would have met him if not through her. So, you know, it, it's I, I am not the best at, at social networking and sort of like making the most of contacts and branching out and. And, and trying to keep my contacts 
file as robust as possible. I, I let opportunities go, but there are certain times in life when you have to say, wait a second, this is really a precious opportunity to get to know this person, to learn from her, to share in the people, the context that she knows and continue to learn and grow. And um, it's been it's been so cool. There haven't been many episodes that have provided that kind of opportunity, but that that one did. And and I owe her a huge debt for hooking me up with this Sherpa who's the wisest dude over there I've ever met. He summoned it ever 17 times. He's locked for Rita Sherpa is his name. He's got a company um, in Seattle called Kangri Experience. He takes people all over the world. And yeah, he's become a friend too. So I, I, I want to podcast for that reason has been wonderful. I want to pull one quote from that and just have you comment on that before we go to you and your brother going back to the Himalaya after 25 years between the two. Um, but one of the quotes that I took from that, Chris, that I thought was amazing was she was talking about base camp at Everest. And she said, base camp in the Himalaya is, it, what was it? She said, it's uh, it's our version of Burning Man, which I, which I started laughing at so much about just like this group, this eclectic group of people all hanging out in this place that they actually shouldn't be hanging out together. And I was just curious, have you ever been to Burning Man? I have not been to Burning Man. <laughs> I have not. I've, I've been to plenty of music festivals, but not Burning Man. She also said it was a show and I have been to various shows, but no, it, it, it's, she it was very colorful and I mean she the way she expressed stuff and have you been to Burning Man? I should ask you. I mean I I, I have not, Chris. My, my 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 girlfriend is twisting my arm to go with her in two weeks. And I um I think I'm very uh thankful that I have a busy work schedule that week and I'm not gonna I have an out. Is it always this time of year? Because I can never go up in September. I yeah, can't. it's it's right around it's always right on top of your busiest time yeah, picking up for the season. So you have a any whenever we all excuse and every hire will I go to Burning Man. Exactly. Um you and your brother going back to the Himalaya, um, and then the annual pilgrimage you make to your mother's um, mm. gravesite up in the mountains. What is it about you and the mountains and spending time with your brother and going up to your mom's grave every year that sort of gives you inner peace? There's something very important to the Chris Bowler that I know that is part of the mountains and that that calling that keeps bringing you back. But taking the time to go 25 years later with your brother to go over to the Himalaya, that must have been a really unique experience. Yeah, thanks. That's very well. But I, to answer your question, I'm not really sure where the pull initially began. I spent childhood in Breckenridge in the summer, like I said, climbing at a very young age. But even before that, we had pictures on our our wall. Remember that I shared a base when we were kids, a bedroom down there. and and we had pictures of Everest and the Matterhorn and Paiju Peak, which is an obscure peak in Pakistan, unclimbed at that point. And, and just for some reason, stared at those posters and gained inspiration and imagined what would it be like to even see them with our own eyes, much less climb them. So the fascination is really an early one. And like, like anybody who finds a place where a feeling of of inspiration, a peace comes over them. I found that really young in the mounds. For other people, it might be another expression of nature. I, I love really all kinds of nature. I just find mountains to be the most profound expression of nature. But I, I feel alive and at peace by the ocean, in a forest, you know, floating down a river. I mean, I, all. all for me, that's church. That's that's where I find inspiration. That's where I see um, divinity. 
you know, is in the beauty of nature. And so the mountains are the ultimate expression for me. Nepal being the ultimate mountains, um, it was a life-changing experience to go in 98 with my brother uh, when I was in my 30s before I was even engaged to Jennifer and and just be blown away by by laying eyes on Ahmad de Blanc and Everest and Lhotse and Nupsi and, and these mountains that are, are they're deities in that culture. They are, they're literally gods. Okay. And they, 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 they call Everest Sagarmatha, not, not Mount Everest. That's the Western name named after a British guy. So goddess mother. And, and you, and you experience not just seeing the mountains with your own eyes, but how they're viewed through other people's eyes who grew up there. And, you, and the, the Nepalese culture is beautiful. And so many things um, that are important to them, like struck a chord with me, the simplicity of their existence, the unattachment to material objects and the unimportance uh, ultimately of wealth, et cetera. And, and sort of what they, what they gain inspiration from. So it took me 25 damn years to get back, which I never thought it would. And then um, we went back this year for, for various reasons and, and, we can get into that if you want, but I, I, mountains large and small are, are inspiring to me. Yeah. So as I think about the metaphor of mountains to sort of the human gods that we have on earth, um, you cover a lot of them. And I, <laughs> I was coming back from having done an interview with Alex Rodriguez down in Miami, probably about, I don't know, two months ago, Chris. And I posted out on uh, Instagram that it had been really great with Alex. And, and, and a friend of mine texted me on the side and he said, isn't that the guy you doped? Isn't that the guy who like broke all the rules? Like, how, how, why are you proud of interviewing him? And I kind of took a deep breath at first. And then I went and pulled out the Teddy Roosevelt uh, quote. Uh, and I'm going to read half of it. I'm not going to go through the entire thing. But it is, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man stumble, how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. You are in the arena and you cover a lot of people in the arena. Um, I listened to your conversation with Lance Armstrong, someone who has gotten a lot of the similar criticism to Alex Rodriguez. And you have stayed deeply loyal to Lance as one of your longtime great friends. It was very evident in the conversation. Um, do you, how do you, how do you look, if you will, at those people and how they carry themselves under the microscope? And, and, and how do you differentiate really between those who seem to have been successful at doing it? Those who don't, but to some degree, to all of us who are just lay people, you have a really bird's eye view of these people, what they have to go through. Like I listened to your conversation, I listened to your discussion about Djokovic and Alcaraz and about the fact that Djokovic has gone 15 majors without losing a tiebreaker until he lost to Alcaraz in the second set at Wimbledon. And I'm sitting there thinking about just, you know, a, a, a mind that is so dialed in that they, you almost sit there and say, if he can be so great at that, you can give him a little bit of flexibility on the other part of his life. Or Lance say to you, Chris, and I'm sorry, this is such a long question, but I think it's an important one. Lance sitting there, when you said, as you look back, Lance, what would you tell others to do? And he was like, slow down. 
realize what's going on because when he was in the tunnel, it was all just flying by him so fast that he couldn't kind of be present on what was actually happening. You, you know these people, you engage with them. What's your view on all this as far as being in the arena or being outside of the arena? Well, I think that scar tissue is a great teacher, right? And all growth is experience. And if you've had a lot of painful, humiliating experiences, which Lance has, you should have learned something. You should have grown. And I, I think he has. Uh, I am loyal to old friends. I'm loyal to him in that way. That doesn't mean I don't acknowledge he made a lot of huge mistakes. And it doesn't mean that I apologize for the things that he did and the way that he treated people. Because he's contrite about that, as you would have heard in that conversation. He knows that it wasn't just the doping stuff, which he believes was given too much play because it's it's just a part of cycling. I'm sorry, but it just is. Um, doesn't excuse it at all. But the way that the fallout from that caused him to mistreat people that he um, cared about. I think he's contrite. I think he realizes that he was an to a lot of people. So I think admitting that he's not the easiest person to, to admit a mistake yeah. for sure. He's, he's complicated that way, but you know, I, I think he's got a lot to offer. I, I we're still friends. Um, I, I think that uh, you, you can be really loyal and supportive and, and care about the memories that you have built with somebody and the things that he's achieved without forgiving everything, you know, and without, excusing mistakes that that person makes. So it was, it was a really interesting thing because when you do a conversation, with, like, which you have with people you're very close to, people you know very well, sometimes it's difficult. I mean, you know, I, I knew we were going to get into the deep stuff, Lance's background, the mistakes he made, but he dove in before I even got there. So he gave me permission to go right into it in a way that he doesn't really do very often. He doesn't do a lot of podcasts and interviews um, like this at all. And I, I was appreciative of his honesty and he didn't make me take the awkward step of having to take off the gloves and go at him as a friend. He'd sort of open it up right away. And, and so that's why, that's why we had that kind of conversation. And, and it, was, it was not one that we could have had 10 or 15 years ago. It, it took him evolving to a certain degree with all he's been through to, to get to a point where we could have that kind of honest exchange. I thought one of the lines that sort of it stopped me in my tracks when I heard it, Chris, was when he said, not to diminish the misdeeds I have lived. And I thought that when he put it in that term of that I've lived, many people would say, it's not to dismiss the stuff I've done or the mistakes I made or whatever else, but to put it in that term of the, the misdeeds I have lived, I thought said he really does own that in a, in a very different way than how I've heard a lot of other people talk about past misdeeds. Yeah, I think so. I think it's taken a long time to get there. Really. I think a lot of therapy and a lot of soul searching and a lot of people that care about him and can speak bluntly to him, nudging him there. Right? I think by instinct, he's not a very contrite person. I, I think he, he doesn't admit mistakes very easily. Um, but I think he's grown and evolved a lot and I'm, I'm proud of that, that part of it. And I, I think he, uh, will continue to grow and he's a very, very interesting person to know and be around. So he's polarizing. I get it. And for some people who, who will just never forgive or turn the page, I understand. Um, I don't live in a black and white binary world. That's just not how I think about things. 
Um, I, I think there's there's many shades to things that happen in sports that that are are, are subtle and worth worth discussing, but are, are 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 not best judged really quickly from a black and white standpoint. One of the I remember in that interview, you talk about how they met Lance for the first time when he was actually still a triathlete and you were in your your first anchoring job of what was it, Collegiate Sports America or something. And yeah. And yeah, he was, he was he wanted to be the next Mark Allen, the, the Iron Man thing at the time, and didn't even hone in on cycling yet. Uh and I was doing Scholastic Sports America and I met him and I he was 16 years old, just trying to make enough bucks at these small triathlons to keep the gas at his Alfa Romeo. And um then, then as he signed a pro contract and made a bunch of money and moved to Austin and I, I was there for all those stages and then getting cancer, I, you know, being in Indy in the hospital when it didn't look like he was going to make it at all. And then, you know, bouncing back and, and having the audacity to think he could compete at a high level in this sport better than he had pre-cancer and, and win the tour. And, you know, I, I got engaged with Jennifer on the final day of his first tour victory in 99, the, the ride into Paris. And, and, you know, was there for the victory party and was there for the retirement party after he won seven in a row. So it's been a lot of things, uh, a lot of chapters along the way, a lot of craziness. Um, if I ever do write a book, there probably be a chapter about some of this stuff because, you know, I, I'm not a very reflective person. Opportunities like this to sit and think about um, the past are interesting to me because I don't really spend much of any time doing it. But wow, there's a lot of shit and a lot of history involving uh, Mr. Armstrong. <laughs> did you introduce, did, am I correct that you introduced him to Sheryl Crow? No, 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 no. Oh, really? No, no, no. I uh, I became, we're dear friends with Cheryl Crow through the camp. Um, okay. Okay. I thought you'd known I, Cheryl because what we haven't talked about is music here and you are a huge yeah. music fan. I am. It's as important to me as sports, and it's a, it was as, as early a passion to me as sports too. Um, at the beginning, it was metal, and I was one of those kids that you know slept out. And this, this is really old time stuff because this doesn't happen anymore. You sleep out on the sidewalk outside the record store when the tickets go on sale for Black Sabbath, you know, or the Who, or or the Scorpions, or Def Leppard, or someone like that. And then you you get those tickets, you go to the show, and um, I, I I just blasted, blasted my eardrums with, with loud rock and roll out of uh, my Sirwin Vega 212 hard rocker speakers and on vinyl at first and then eventually CD and now I'm back to vinyl full circle. It's just a really important part. It's fun for me. I, I, the many, many other genres that come around, obviously. You know, I, I had a radio show in, in college and that's where I, I first fell in love with bands like, like R.E.M. and why I was thrilled to eventually meet them and hang out a bit later on and too and and in all all kinds of that 80s first wave stuff but jazz classical I mean I really have a bizarre eclectic um music file and 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 love all of it you remember going to see the reconstituted guns and roses at about 2 30 <laughs> in the morning in New York at one time with one of our mutual friends were you at that show I was not. I was not. But he sent me. He sent me a text and said, "When you when you're on with Chris, you've got to bring up going to see Guns and Roses, the reconstituted Guns and Roses in New York." I mean, you reconstituted meant no slash. Um, it met it met Axel with a few kilos over his fighting weight. 
uh, yeah, that was that was a bizarre show. And he, they came on about midnight, but finished about three thirty. I think uh, Jim did hang around to the end as I did. But I, I saw Guns N' Roses at Hyde Park this summer during Wimbledon. I have to say, very different kind of show. The triumphant kind of reassemblage of the band Slash was back, um, and, and they 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 cranked it out for three hours. So they're still going strong. So you're uh, in the south of France with Lance at some point and he gets a phone call to go to Bono's house for dinner and you end up tagging along for dinner at Bono's house in the South of France. You did your homework. Talk us through that one. There are a lot of things, Chris, that I'm jealous of you doing. Having dinner at Bono's place in the South of France is right up there. Yeah. Well, it was right up there for me too. I mean, it was, it was an out of body experience. I promise. I mean, I, you know, Bono and Lance were friends. They were, um, you know, sharing ideas about what what to do you know, philanthropically at that point. He had just retired. It was a retirement party uh, for about five couples in the south of France. And Bono calls him and and says, "Come on over for dinner." And Lance says, "Well, I I I'd love to. That's very nice, but I I got all my people here, so it's a big group." And Bono's like, "Bring your people. Bring all your people." So we we got a bunch of SUVs and drove over to this amazing place in Es. In, in in south of france which has a massive amount of mediterranean water frontage and he was just a perfect host man he just it was a it was a surreal experience i sat right across from him he said i gave lance some huge toast with beautiful flowery i mean a guy could write songs right he's a beautiful wordsmith then he points to me and goes now you go i didn't realize we were all going to give a toast and i was going to have to follow him um, so you kind of hope you, something comes to mind. And then I get a chance to talk to, to Bono about the show in Boulder at, at Red Rocks where they, they filmed Under a Blood Red Sky. And oh, yeah. it, it, it was incredible in their, in their tour for the album War, which is one of the most powerful experiences of my life. He couldn't believe I was there because it, it, it rained about half, it was about half full. So not many people were there. And, and he told me the whole story about how important that was for the bandit. I was just sitting there, this is Bono's house. I'm talking to Bono about that show. And he, he was lovely. We stayed there for about five hours. He invited us to stay for dinner. He had a massage. The masseuse came in, was going to give him a massage. He wanted us to stay while that happened and then go to dinner. And we had, we had something else planned. And so we're graciously declined. I finally got out of his way, but it was about a five hour lunch at his house. And I'll never forget it. I have a really quick anecdote that I'm just going to sneak in here. I don't like to talk about myself during these, but this is this is one that I just got to throw in there. A number of years ago, when my now son who's at CU, uh, I took him to go see you two up in Baltimore. And uh, I told him, hey, it's going to be a late night. You're going to get home late. No whining or crying when we get up to go to school in the mornings like that. I'm all in. We go up. We go to the concert. We go backstage afterwards. We see Bono. He couldn't have been nicer than my son. It was awesome. We come back home. The next morning, I go to wake him up. And I'm waking him up. And he's lying in bed. And he's just crying. He's like, Dad, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. And I turn to him. I go, Jack. Just think, I mean, you get to go to school and tell everyone you got to meet Bono last night. My son rolls over in bed and he looks at me and goes, Dad, none of my friends know who Bono is. And I was like, a dagger, just a dagger. He was great. Um, so everyone would kill me if I didn't go into college football for a moment with you. Um, three topics I want to touch base on before we close this up and I give you back the rest of your evening. Um, the first one is 
just the shuffling of the decks as it relates to the the, the leagues and and uh, the Pac-12 and the demise of the Pac-12. You call it the age of instability. I mean, everyone's chasing the the incremental dollar. Uh, who knows where it all ends? My question, I guess, Chris, is this: Does the NCAA become superfluous, and it just becomes this new reconstitution of? actual leagues rather than the overreaching body of the NCA because it seems to not have any say in what's going on right now. No, it doesn't. And I do think it becomes superfluous. And I think that's the way they want it in the sport. The top top schools don't want to be governed by the NCA. They don't see it as a um, model that's very up to date. So I think what you're going to see very quickly, we're already, this happened way faster than I thought it would, but we all assumed there would end up being you know two really powerful conferences the Big Ten align mostly with Fox, but other networks, the SEC align with ABC and ESPN, and they're going to pick off the attractive members of other conferences. The only way these days you have a stable conference is if you have teams that no one else covets, because the, you know, then you can just sit there and, and make a few bucks and have few, a few eyeballs on you. But the other two conferences will continue to grab up teams. They'll, others will want to continue to go there. Big 12 will survive um, in some fashion. The ACC doesn't know what's going to happen next. But I, I think it's just an era when tradition, stability, nostalgia don't matter much. And college football has sold those things for a long time. A lot of people love the sport because they represent those things in a different way than the NFL. In becoming more and more like pro football, which is what college has done in, on several fronts, you know, the NFL is the most popular sport in America. So in some ways, you say, well, that makes sense. But you also lose the ability to differentiate, to sell something different, to be distinct from the NFL. And, and for all the people that love college because it was different and distinct, uh, get really, really disillusioned. And, and some may drift away. But the bottom line is that now everything is laid bare. Let's not pretend this is about anything other than huge piles of cash, right? And for a while, they tried to pretend for decades, they tried to pretend that wasn't the truth. And it has been for a long time. And so the very thing that these administrators have accused players of doing, which is, you know, being selfish, being greedy, going for money grabs, self-interest over the collective, that's exactly what is happening in the sport throughout the landscape. I mean, they're, everybody's in it for themselves. They're grabbing as many dollars as they can. They don't care about the school and their state down the road getting left behind. That's of no concern to Oregon and Washington when they go to the Big Ten. And I, and, I mean, should it be? It, it really is. As you know, more about business than I do, it, it's, it's, it's just self-interest. It's a, what's best for me. And, and that's, that's the way it is for, for players, for coaches, for schools, for conferences. I heard you talking about on one of your podcasts about the, you know, the Rose Bowl and the fact that Pac-12 and Big Ten, the, 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 you'd have these conference dinners where everyone would come together and raise a glass about the great history of the Rose Bowl and the <laughs> Big Ten meeting the Pac-12. And, 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 you know, when I, when I lived in the UK, Chris, I'd go up and um, I, I remember distinctly going up to a Liverpool game 
And it was as much about all the tradition behind it and having the players come in and talk to us about these great matches that they had against Chelsea and all this. There was as much fun as actually watching the game. And that's, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of UK fans who like the game a lot more than the the chance and everything else. But as an outsider, I loved all that. And I think you raise a really serious coin as it relates to, I mean, like the only day, the only time that college game days ever done a D3 game was when you went to cover Amherst Williams. And you talked about the tradition of that rivalry and why it makes that game so much more than just a football game. And I do think that this chase for the money could end up really being detrimental to the underlying game of college football. Yeah, I, I do. I do, too. Uh, I, I think each program will have its individual history in the way that Liverpool has its own history and and the top clubs in the Premier League all have their own their own folklore. Right. I mean, Michigan, Oregon, USC, they're going to have their own individual histories. It's just the collective history of the Pac-12 is going to become ancient history. It's gets yeah. dissolved that it's going to be uh, a piece of nostalgia where the Southwest Conference is. And some rivalries will suffer. I don't mean to say that that those programs who have been the pillars of the sport won't continue to sell their tradition. They will. It'll just be um, this time of transition where you're, you're going to have to get used to new marriages of convenience and, and not just the old regional ties with teams. But but I, I'm not saying that that each program surrenders their own tradition because they don't. I mean, SC doesn't forget about its past and the championships and the Heisman's because they're going to the Big Ten. It's just going to feel very different. And, and I do think there's a lot of exciting things about this. We focus on the sadness and what we're losing, but that's just not the world I live in. I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to be involved in this sport for for some some period of time going forward. And you know, there's also some exciting, cool new stuff. But these realignment means USC playing at Ohio State, and vice versa, right? And Oregon going to Michigan on a regular basis, and it's a conference game. And and now you got Texas and Alabama this year. The game I'm covering in Tuscaloosa, non-conference, but they're going to be playing a lot. And then and teams across the SEC and new rivalries. So there's a lot of cool new stuff too. And I'm not one to sit around and just uh, cry about the past. I, I, I think there's there's sad aspects to it. But in the end, what good does it do? I'm still going to love the sport. So then the one other question I have on that is Nils and uh, the portal. Do they democratize the sport or do they just make the big get bigger? To be determined. I, I do think that the portal gives you a chance to assemble a roster at a place like Colorado, which we talked about, which was the thinnest roster in power five a year ago and has 70 new faces impossible to even think about rebuilding without the portal uh in, in the past it would take years you know the way like bill cider rebuilt the debacle at kansas state into something big but it took a bunch of recruiting classes to do it now you can do it like that but i do think that every modification we've had in the end the elite power programs find a way to make it work for them, right? And I think that NIL is an example. I mean, yeah, you can you can have a, a bunch of money and you can compete with the top schools, but it's hard to outspend. These are bidding wars, right? I mean, people understand that's what's going on, right? I mean, here, here comes a guy out of high school who's a great quarterback and one school can give a 150, they can't go higher. And they, they, it's like a poker game, they'll fold. Someone else is offering two. Then, then, then the offer is two fifty. That's what it is. That's exactly the conversations that are being had with parents and agents, 
and schools or, or the representatives of schools, the, the NIL collectives that operate technically outside the framework, but they're very much a part of it. You know, and, and that's not going to stop. It's in the past, it was called cheating. Now it's NIL and the players are benefiting. And I think it's impossible to turn the clock back. Although, as you know, with all reforms, there are unintended consequences. And this is unregulated Wild West stuff. You combine the portal with NIL and the fact that players are being recruited who are not even in the portal. Okay. So they have not declared their intention to leave their school. They're just hanging out on campus waiting for the upcoming season. And they're being bombarded with approaches saying, hey, for 250, come over here, get in the portal and come here. So that 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 kind of coercion um and then raiding of rosters is 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 unsavory. It's a problem. I don't know what they can do to regulate it short of the federal government, which many people just are, are horrified by the idea of that happening, but I don't know how else you can regulate it. And final thing on college football, looking out at the season, you're going to cover some of the most important games to kick off the beginning of the season. Who Who's looking good in your book as it relates to national champion? Well, I'd like to be creative and say a bunch of other teams, but the problem we have is this sport is so top heavy. Which why your question was a good one. I mean, what's going to break up this this block of teams? And, and we know who they are. They're the same teams. I mean, it's Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, those are the preseason top four. LSU's in there. Um, USC could be in there. It'd be nice if there's a West Coast representation. You know, Penn State, Notre Dame. There's a few teams sort of like vying on the fringe. But if you expand the twelve teams. Well, you you might get the same four in the semis. Inclusivity, expansion, bigger, you know, more teams involved in the playoff hunt, more playoff games on TV. Okay, when it whittles down, who's going to go on the road and beat those teams in a playoff game in the quarterfinals to get into the final four? I, I just, I don't see it really shifting or changing. Um, so... I, I have a hard time looking outside of those teams. I would love USC to make a run. I would love to have West Coast representation in the playoff mix. If Utah's come close and fallen short, uh, I want a more geographic spread. It does not do us good to have this sport dominated purely by the southeastern part of the country. I could have thrown in Florida State and Clemson in that list of contenders. They're very much in the playoff mix too. But they have to have the sport dominated by the southeast – uh, to the degree that it has been, it is not good for it. And that that's pretty clear. I heard your comment. About- but nobody can beat them. They're not going anywhere. Those are the, there's the teams that pour the resources in. There's only two kinds of programs. The ones that have decided from the top down, administration on down, whatever it takes. And, and the ones who don't. And that's it. Whatever it takes group are the ones you see competing for championships. The ones who aren't in that group, aren't so period that that's only going to get uh, more pronounced going forward i heard you make the comment about the fact that west coast recruiting is going to completely change because of the shift of all these west coast teams now playing on the east coast and i was sitting there thinking about well what if you're a parent and you want to watch your son play college football in your backyard and then i was like and then they can't travel and then i said oh now they all have mills they can they can afford for mom and dad to come to the game so i was like i was sitting there like bemoaning the fact that some of the parents couldn't watch their kids lie and then i was like no i think they can probably afford it these days um, yeah, thing is that post COVID, there was kind of a shift where I thought kids were staying closer to home, you know, and then that era where uh, everybody's isolated, 
And then that, that quickly it blew, blew up with Portland and the NIL. Now it's who knows what's going to happen in recruiting. It's going to be more national than ever, though. And, and really recruiting, um, all, while still really important for the programs that want to be stable year in, year out, um, sort of takes a backseat to free agency. It's like the, the, the importance of free agency and building a roster on pro sports versus the drafts. Um, I mean, for some franchises, 50-50, some it's way more important, the free agent market than the draft. And I think as, as, we, as we're seeing in college football, the portal is becoming more important than recruiting. Yeah. Uh, Chris, you've been super generous with your time. It's been incredibly fun for me to just pick your brain and hear about all the things going on in your world. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna put together a dinner and we're going to have Courier, Mills, Yarrow, you and me. I'm going to be, I'm going to be at it. It's going to be for my great buddies. And we'll talk about the arts. We'll talk about tennis. We'll talk oh my about God. Music, and we'll talk about broadcasting. So um, if you can make that happen, I'll, I'll, I'll crawl to wherever that'd be. I, that, that, that's a, that's a fine group. And I, I really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed our time here and keep up the great work and I hope to see it. Um, not in two screens, but face to face sometime soon. Thanks again, Chris. Have a great evening. You bet. You too.